Okay. So retrograde be retrograding, if that's still going on to uh, explain the ridiculous technical difficulties I've been having on seemingly everything over the last few days. So um, let me know if you have any difficulty hearing me. Um, I can't use my AirPods for some reason today. So I'm just going to be going based off these internal speakers. So let me know if you have any sound issues today. And I'm still, I'm looking crazy because I decided to lay by the pool all day today and work. And yeah, here we are at eight o'clock at night. So we're going to go over um, the rest of the types of PCOS. I lump together androgenic and estrogenic in one because technically there is no estrogenic on its own. There's estrogen dominance, but this plays into this overall puzzle. So what we're going to start with, I'm going to explain the, the main type of PCOS, which is androgenic. Pretty much all of the other types of PCOS can be connected to androgenic PCOS. Um, and the reason for that is it makes up such a big portion of the criteria to be diagnosed with PCOS. Now, that doesn't mean this is a lot of like clients that have been pursuing diagnosis for a long time. Um, and get keep being told like everything's fine, everything's fine. That doesn't mean that you could not have PCOS even if your blood work says otherwise and you're not androgenic. That's why we look at these subtypes because if you have symptoms and labs that are that correspond with the subtypes, basically all of them contribute to having high androgen hormones, but not enough to make lab work call you androgenic. Does that make sense so far? I know it's kind of confusing. It's all based on androgens, but the diagnosis will vary based on what is causing those androgens to be acting up, okay? So androgenic PCOS, the one we're starting with, is just ba your basic, you have more of those androgenic male hormones. Now, <clears throat> I think the, the symptoms are very common amongst all the different types, but again, if they all relate back to having higher androgens or imbalanced androgens, that would make sense, right? So let's go through some of these symptoms. Hirsutism. Hirsutism, everybody's favorite one. That is excess hair on the face, on the body. Um, it's not just typically being hairy. It's like the dark, thick, coarse hairs that pop up in almost like a, a bearded pattern, you know, um, or a body hair type of, of growth pattern that is like hard to stay on top of removal wise. You know, it's, it's a different than like if it's genetically, if you're hairy, which I am Greek and Italian, um, if you're genetically hairy, if you remove that hair, you're not typically growing at really, really lightning speed fast. If you are growing that tip, that type of hair at lightning speed fast, that's usually hormonally driven. So hirsutism, gotta love it. Um, thinning hair on the scalp or baldness, especially in like the hairband area, which is like like back here, hairline, um, or might have bald spot up here, up top, top of the scalp. Um, oily, oily hair. Um, so it's very difficult to get your to get your scalp to feel like it's ever really truly clean. Um, acne or oily skin, especially acne right down in here, right in the bearded area as well. Body acne, very common. Um, irregular or absent periods, lack of ovulation, of course, the best one ever, infertility. 
these are common. I mean, fatigue, insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is so common with androgenic PCOS. The two go hand in hand. If you remember from last week's Zoom, if you have elevated insulin production, insulin's technically an androgenic hormone. So you'll have elevated androgens. Um, so all of this is probably, you know, the story of your life. If, you, if you're hearing this, if you have androgenic PCOS, then do you relate to any of the things that I just rattled off? Do they feel like they've taken over a chunk of your life? If that's the case, you got high androgens. If your blood work doesn't show it, that's a whole other topic. But tell me in the chat if you can relate to this side of things. Becca says 100%. Yeah. Um, and it's it's also when you, when you get into the subtypes, that's when you can really break it down because you want to figure out what might be causing these elevated androgens. If you have insulin resistance, that could be causing it. If you have high inflammation, which we'll get into today, that could be causing it. Adrenal PCOS, you know, having high um, cortisol, that can cause it. So there's, it's always, you're always wanting to find like, yes, okay, almost every type of PCOS is androgenic, but why? What is making it that way? And, you know, uh, Mo, that's a good point. Everything except the infertility and missing periods. You know, uh, one of the criterias there to, to technically be diagnosed with PCOS, there have to, you have to meet, what is this? I forget how many it is. I think it's two of the three. Two of the three have to be present from this criteria. So irregular or absent cycles, clinical or biochemical evidence of elevated androgen levels, or uh, cysts on your ovaries. Now, people can have all of the clinical showings of high androgens, but they could have a period that is like clockwork. They could have no cysts on their, on their uh, ultrasounds. They could not be reproductively engaged, but they could be hormonally engaged in the imbalance. So if you remember from last time, PCOS is an issue that pertains to your hormones, not just the ovaries, which is, tends to be the main focus with a lot of the diagnostics and everything. Um, except to be honest, I have one kid and only was pregnant once and I was not careful for several years. That's the other thing, you know, because then like how, do, unless people are trying actively to have a, a child and there, it's not happening. A lot of people aren't going to go, aren't going to be looking at that. You know, it's just, but it makes you look back and go, hmm, either I was really good at figuring out my ovulation window or what's going on, you know? So my favorite is when talking about past generations, people won't know that their parents had hormonal issues, but then when they look at it, they have like really big age gaps between siblings. And just because it was never really talked about, it doesn't mean that that's not in that family, you know, that lineage, you could still have hormonal issues in your family, but because it wasn't diagnostically like glaring for it to be diagnosed as PCOS. I mean, and even back in the day, it wouldn't have been diagnosed unless it was like a real big issue, then it's still in our genetics. It's just a lot of people are unaware. Is that only the case for androgenic type PCOS or is infertility, fertility struggles common for all? Um, common for all because it has to do with the hormones that comprise the reproductive system, not just the reproductive organs. So um, like if you have estrogen dominance, 
then you might not be glaring in terms of androgens, but your estrogen and progesterone would be off. And then that is going to cause infertility. So a lot of, all of them carry a risk. My thing is when they tell people that if you have PCOS, like you are guaranteed to have fertility issues, because there are plenty of people who do not. I got some fertile ass clients, (laughs) you know, they have every other symptom. Um, But that is not one. You know, it it really is very individual. So, and you're saying my grandma had a hysterectomy at 40. My mom too. My, I don't even know how old my mom was. I was like in college and my mom needed an emergency hysterectomy and had been pursuing PCOS as a diagnosis forever. Um, I talk about my mom a lot as like the client I couldn't help, you know, and a lot of it was because she was just disregarded by the medical community for a really long time. Um, and needed an emergency hysterectomy and multiple transfusions and everything. And I, I'm so bad at remembering ages, but I want to say she was probably closer to 50. Like it wasn't even, it wasn't like a super long time ago. Crazy. Or in college, wow, the years have passed. Maybe it was a while ago. Either way, she was at least 40 something. Um, I hear about it all the time. I have clients who get hysterectomies into their 50s. So I'm so curious about the family history part of this all. My grandmother had two kids before she was 30, but went through menopause before 40 and definitely had hormonal issues. Absolutely. It is all one big puzzle and people present so differently. Um, that's that's why I disagree with this criteria for diagnosis for PCOS. And they say, what is it, like one in 10? I don't even believe those statistics because I think that the process for diagnosis is so fuzzy still um, and just not inclusive enough for how common these issues are. And I mean, it would be okay if, if I feel like if doctors gave life to imbalances, if they said this is an imbalance, maybe you don't want to make it a whole diagnosis, but to not validate there being something wrong when you're, you know, you're having symptoms or your levels are off when it can all be connected just seems like an absence of knowledge at that point, you know, or denial. Um, But anyway, Um, okay. So I'm going to offer up, I usually don't talk. I've been trying to talk about food a lot more because I think in doing this for as long as I've done this, I am so used to the way I view food, the way I view cooking as just like the secondary thing. Like it's just a, uh, an act of nature, you know, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's second nature. It's second nature by now. And in talking to you guys uh, at the retreat and then over, you know, the last few months, especially summertime, everyone gets really kind of their schedules get thrown off and everything. I realized the importance of giving you guys knowledge into food stuff, easy food stuff. I know it sounds like dumb, Michelle, but I've been doing this for a very long time and sometimes you forget, you know, and I take for granted how I prepare my food and stuff like that. I'm going to be sharing that a lot more with you guys. So today I want to include some foods after I finish talking about each different type of PCOS. I'm going to include some foods that may help. Okay. Now, all of this to say, and you've heard me say this for years, this is why I don't put as much emphasis into food a lot of times is stress. Stress is the number one. There is avoidable stress and there's unavoidable stress. And you want to budget the avoidable stress to accommodate the unavoidable stress. Because I don't care if you're living on chicken and kale and you got some celebrity guru chef cooking for you every day. If you're stressed, 
I don't want you to be bummed out that your food isn't doing it for you because stress will trump whatever you're eating any day. So there's tons of, tons of Zooms on the stress side of things. And of course, you can text me or coach, whatever, to work that out. So take the food suggestions I'm going to give you with them as that suggestions. It's all part of the overall process. So because androgenic um, PCOS is closely connected to insulin resistance, you want to look for low glycemic carbs. Low glycemic carbs are carbs that your body takes longer to process. So they're going to deliver, it's going to, your body's going to deliver insulin at a slower rate and you're going to digest food at a slower rate. That's what you want. You want nice, slow and steady. Everything in our hormonally messed up bodies do better with slow and steady. Okay. So um, I've done a zoom on this. If you look for, I think it's, I think it's just called glycemic index, or I might've just done it in the baby step carbs video. Um, but to be honest with you, I don't just remember if things are low glycemic or high glycemic. I Google it whenever I'm trying something new. Granted, a lot of the foods I eat are repetitive, so I do kind of know it by now. But if it's something that I don't know, if it's a lower glycemic or a higher glycemic carb, I just Google what the food item is and low glycemic index. And then it will tell me, it'll give me an idea. There is no clear science to this. What you want to do is find a carb that happens to be on the lower side and then always pair it with a protein. So I'm trying to think of an example. If you're going to have some berries, that's a low glycemic fruit. You can add some, we're going to do a non-dairy one, but um, edamame. You can have some roasted edamame or some um, steamed edamame. They make them microwavable now. You don't have to have a lot, just a little bit of protein with it. What that does is it if it helps prolong that insulin response. So whether it has to be either low glycemic, that does the job of like delivering the slow, steady insulin and then adding a protein to it, slow and steady even more. That's that's the goal. So that's a big one to look at. Um, the types of proteins that you want to look for. I mean, I really, I don't like to be very picky with proteins, but I will say, I do think it's important to look at liquid proteins, like protein shakes, um, protein bars, things like that. Think of those things as supplements in protein. It's like a good boost, but you really want to try and get your protein from like direct sources, um, different types of meats. A lot of vegetables actually have a protein content to them, like peas, you know, um, tofu, trying to think of other ones, edamame. What did I have written here? I love fish. And if you're the type of person who's like, I don't eat fish, I don't like fish, but you've never really tried it besides a couple times and someone made it kind of crappy. Trust me, text me. I'm, I'm going to convert you because I love it. Um, so what else? Different types of complex fats like avocados, nuts, seeds, olive oil. Olive oil is one of my favorite go-tos. I eat a lot of it. Um, it's also good because if like I don't tend to have a big appetite during the day. So if I add olive oil to things, I know that's like a really good brain fat. Like it's really good cognitively, which who can't use that, honestly. Um, and it doesn't impart, impede a lot of, um, can I speak? doesn't impart a lot of flavor in the dish you're having and it packs a good calorie punch. So you don't have to eat a whole lot and you don't have to worry that you're under eating during the day. Um, let's see. 
Is it the same for avocado oil? Avocado oil is also good, but there's just, it's just different components. Olive oil is more anti-inflammatory, which I'll, I'll get to in the, the inflammation one too, but it's just, there's so many great studies done on olive oil. And I think I'm biased because I'm Greek and Italian. I'm like, I'm Greek and I'm Italian Argentinian, like the three cultures that love their olive oil. So um, I'm a big proponent of it. And I know there's specific types of antioxidants in it that I'm just not remembering the name of, but I will, I can send you some info on, on that comparison if you'd like. I swear by marinating some salmon in gluten-free low sugar teriyaki sauce and some sesame seeds, then pan saute. Mm. My husband doesn't love fish and he loves that salmon. I love it. I love it. Another good one that I found to convert a lot and it, it feels so much more fancy than it is. This is going to be in the cookbook I'm doing for you guys. You just take a piece of salmon, dry it off with a paper towel. Um, you take pistachios, shelled pistachios, pulse them in like a little Nutribullet or something. So they're not so like, I don't know, they're like whole, whole pistachios, you know, crush them up. And then you're going to take some mustard. Dijon mustard is my favorite, but whatever you got, brush it on the salmon. Take your salmon, like put your pistachios on a plate and just like plop it down in the pistachios and like press so it really sticks in there. Stick that in the air fryer. So good. So, so, so good. And it doesn't taste like you don't pick up the mustard in it. Like it just helps it stick and like coat really well. It's delicious. I love salmon. Um, fiber rich foods are really good for androgenic, um, PCOS, like fiber rich veggies are great. They take a long time to break down. So it's going to help with that insulin, um, release as well. Um, legumes are really great for this especially also like high fiber vegetables, high fiber fruits, like strawberries, raspberries, um, high fiber legumes, like chickpeas, lentils, things like that. They help you stay fuller longer. So if you're someone who has leptin resistance, which is really common with androgenic PCOS and you feel hungry very, very often, um, getting fiber rich food is going to help with that feeling of satiety. So is there any good, are there any good alternatives for salmon? I really don't like the taste. Oh, no, I'm, I'm so determined. I'm, we're going to find a way. Um, I use, was it ba bass filet? And I'm not sure if that's a good alternative. Really, I mean, salmon's great because it's so high in that, that omega fat that you really want. Um, but honestly, all seafood is a great protein source. And you can get those omegas in, from a different, type of food. You can use olive oil, you can eat avocados, you can eat walnuts, you know, those types of things um, and change up the fish, whatever is more most palatable. So um, anti-inflammatory food, anti-inflammatory foods also help with androgenic PCOS, which we will get to. Um, spices. So certain spices like cinnamon and fenugreek can actually help improve insulin sensitivity. Um, and right, help regulate blood sugars, which again, really important for those excess androgens. Um, like I mentioned before, omega-3 fatty acids. So um, omegas found in salmon. I don't know how you feel about like mackerel or sardines. Um, sardines get such a bad rap, but I, I think again, this might be the Greek in me, but freaking love them. Um, anchovies are also great. They give a nice little salty burst. I like chopping them up really fine and putting them in salad dressings. Um, that's what's in an original Caesar dressing. So, and a lot of people don't even realize that. Let's see what you're seeing here. 
elimination diet is BS and nobody should follow it. But in there, I was told that legumes are inflammatory. I never gave them up. I was just curious. It depends. So like certain beans can that like the the more starchy the bean is, the more inflammatory it it will be. Just because if you think about it, it takes a long time to get broken down. That's why we get gas, you know, beans, beans. <laughs> so there is a hierarchy. I don't think that you could overeat beans enough to make it like bad for you inflammatory. I think that the benefits that come from them and the quantities that we would tend to eat them outweigh any of those negatives. Um, especially if you find that you feel better getting protein from them than some other protein sources. Um, also like really, 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 really washing your legumes is super, super important. Some people let them soak overnight, especially the dried variations. Um, I prefer cans because I'm lazy. Um, but I also always try to remove any kind of skin that comes on the beans. It is a little bit laborious, but it improves the texture. You fart less. Um, and I find that it's just like a better absorbed form of protein that way. Not my Polish grandfather eating sardines out of the can. I love it. I didn't know. I didn't know Polish people do it too. Greeks too. Like I, I love it. There's like 50 different types of anchovies and sardines and like different types of preserved fish when you go to the market and they're all really good. They're not like gross, at least in my opinion. Um, also from learning that I learned that peanuts are legumes. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know what I really want to try? I don't know if anyone in here has tried it, but boiled peanuts. It's like a Southern thing. And I've ne I don't, apparently it's like a whole process to make them. I have never seen them anywhere up here. Um, like next time I'm anywhere South, I have to find boiled peanuts. I'm just so curious. Um, because I thought it was like, oh, you just take some peanuts and boil them. No, it's like a thing. Like what Chelsea's saying, it is a thing. There's a process and it has to be the green types. I've looked into the whole thing and I'm overwhelmed and intimidated. So I just need to like vacation down South and go try some. If you're in the South and pat and pass a sketchy looking truck selling them out the back, those are the good ones. I love it. I love it. Um, green tea. Green tea is uh, also really good for uh, androgenic PCOS. Be careful with the caffeine side of things. Because too much stimulants, too many, too much caffeine can also have the adverse effect and cause an excess release of cortisol, which then gets converted into an androgenic hormone, which adds to the imbalance. So I would wait at least two hours after waking up to consume any green tea. I, I would not consume it within at least six hours of going to sleep. You don't want it to affect your sleep cycle and, and your cortisol melatonin at night, which it can. Um, green tea is fantastic for inflammation as well. Um, I, if you're going to do matcha, be careful. Don't fall for the, the pre-blended matcha types. They're usually pre-sweetened. And while they're sweetened like crazy to make them really delicious and palatable, we can recreate that without all of the excess sugar in there. Um, and it, it's just another one of those like things that are marketed as very healthy and it's not, it's like, Cool if you want it as a treat, but just don't get duped. Um, because I definitely did back in the day. I don't know. I was like, look at this Starbucks matcha latte. Cause I would ask for it unsweetened and I would get my matcha latte from Starbucks. And then I it would still be kind of sweet, but I'm like, I asked for it unsweetened, ignorance is bliss. And then little diabetic me would have a massive high blood sugar, be like, but I asked for it unsweetened. So one day I asked them at Starbucks and they're like, no, the mix is highly sweetened, no matter what. 
We just don't add additional sweetener to it when you ask for it unsweetened. So um, you can't go wrong with ceremonial grade matcha powder and then a sweetener of your choice. Don't be shy if you need to sweeten it with like six packets of stevia. It's okay. It's very strong. So in San Diego, the matcha latte was unsweetened. At Starbucks, like truly unsweetened or they just didn't add additional on top of it. That's how I got tricked. Oh, not Starbucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if you find like the mom and pop shops, they usually like... It's not like matcha sacrilege like it is at Starbucks, but I fell for that trap. So just beware. I think they even have matcha at like Dunkin' Donuts now and stuff. It's crazy. Um, limit sugar and sugar and highly processed foods. Now, I disagree with calling things highly processed. I like to have some specificity to that because almost all foods, especially in this country, are processed to some degree. Our fruits and vegetables are processed because they have to travel all over creation and be able to be accessible to people in their average grocery store. So there will always be a level of processing in our food. And I find that that tends to be kind of like a making food bad kind of term. but I, I view processed foods in this regard as something that is usually high in sugar, high in carb and fried at the same damn time. We all, you know, there's that, that typical, like, you know, food that is like, I don't like talking about food like this. So I get uncomfortable, but you know, the difference between going to a drive-through for fried chicken and making chicken at home yourself. Like there is a different process that happens there. You know what I mean? So when you're battling androgenic PCOS, which usually has some level of insulin resistance to it, typically those types of processed foods are going to have a high impact in your blood sugars. So that's why you want to avoid them. Um, so yeah, I hate talking about food in this way, but it is important when it comes to this kind of stuff. So this one's really important. Regular meals and snacks. People view hunger as such a bad thing when you're used to being told that you should be smaller. But I always say this, if the dieting hasn't helped us get to salvation, like we've been told it's going to, then maybe people don't know what the hell they're talking about. And eating regularly throughout the day, I don't mean like, like if you're not a meal person, throw meal out the window, just eat, just have bits of stuff throughout the day. That's okay. That's, that's even better than waiting hours for meals, certain meals at certain times. There's no biological reason we should have meals. Meals are cultural and meals are schedule-based, convenience-based, tradition-based, not biology-based. If you think about it, like if you're living out in the wilderness, you eat something, you catch something, you eat it. You know, you try to preserve it the best you can, but you can't really do that, right? So things are intended to be, you find to eat, you find to eat repeatedly throughout the day. Anything beyond that is your own personal choice. So don't put pressure on yourself to have this ideal way of eating. Just eat throughout the day. You're going to feel better. Your blood sugars will be more stable. Your androgens will be lower. That is a huge, huge thing that I suggest, okay? Um, let's see. Like nice coffee tea shop, the Dunkin' Matcha sweetened as well. So annoying. It's like selling cocaine. You have to cut it to make a profit and not charge $10,000. That is true though, because ceremonial um, matcha can get pricey. My favorite brand is the Ito N. It's like I-T-O space E-N. Kind, it's like very popular commercial brand from Japan. Um, it's not like 
ceremonial grade, like, you know, the most purest in the world, but it's, it's still really, really, really decent matcha, singular ingredient matcha and at a decent price because some of that stuff can get like, like $80 a jar for like a little one. I'm like, I'm not hosting a ceremony. I'm just trying to drink some matcha, you know? So, okay. Estrogenic PCOS, AKA estrogen dominance, progesterone imbalance. So estrogenic PCOS is not technically a type. Like I mentioned, everything goes back to androgens, right? So, but you can have an imbalance of your estrogen and balance of your progesterone, you could have more estrogen dominance. And all of this is going to interfere with your androgens, not in a way that would read as a glaring androgen lab work, like, oh, PCOS, but in a way that would cause symptoms. This is typically the trap that people fall into when they go to the doctor, like I mentioned before, no glaring blood work, maybe they don't have missing periods, you know, stuff like that. Um, estrogenic PCOS is also the quote unquote, I hate this term, but lean PCOS people with lean PCOS tend to have estrogenic PCOS, which is why they don't have the typical androgenic signs like weight retention and things like that. Like they'll have hair loss, but you know, if you're not, if you walk in there thin, doctors look at you different, you know, and that's not necessarily a good thing when you're ill. And doctors are only looking at your size as a determinant, as a determination of your hormones. So this is the tricky one, I call it. It evades a lot of, of medical like intervention for that reason. So let's see, let's dive into this. So symptoms of for this, I thought I added all of these. Sorry, bear with me. My notes are a little messed up. Okay, here we go. Sorry. Okay, so symptoms of estrogenic PCOS or estrogen dominance, whichever. So irregular periods are very common with um, estrogen dominance, you know, but it could come in the way of intensity. So you might have the time might be regular, like you might start and have like a 30 day cycle around then and stuff. But you might have periods that sometimes last over a week that sometimes are super heavy, super painful. Um, but because they're regular, they're not looked at necessarily as as like involved as a menstrual involvement. Um, you can also go through. Oh, no, I said that super heavy periods, breast tenderness, increased estrogen levels equal really, really tender breasts. So you could notice like throughout the month, you're like, why? This makes no sense. And it's because of an imbalance. Um, mood swings, estrogen dominance. Um, it can cause mood swings, irritability, and anxiety. So this is very common also with those who have, um, oh my God, adrenal, adrenal-involved PCOS. You know, the, the, the feeling of like all of a sudden, your zipper getting stuck makes you want to rip someone's head off or makes you want to hate everything about yourself for the rest of the night in the doom spiral. You know, like it just starts like quick trigger kind of anxiety. Um, that's very common with this weight gain, weight, uh, inability to gain weight, hip and thigh weight retention, extreme bloating, water retention, 
fibroids. So uterine fibroids and pelvic pain, along with the heavy bleeding. Um, headaches, reoccurring headaches are very common as well as vertigo. Fatigue, <laughs> ironically, fatigue and then insomnia. Um, decreased libido. So if you feel like you'd rather file your nails, then, you know, do the deed. Um, some symptoms of, if you have a progesterone imbalance, which is common with this, irregular cycles, like I said, super heavy bleeding, you lean more with the progesterone imbalance, um, increased depression, lack of motivation, intense breast swelling throughout the month, um, increased PMS symptoms, which I think is just a anecdotally, I would like to think that this is more common with PMDD. Spotting in between periods, difficulty conceiving, extreme uh, extreme fatigue, and uh, uh, also decreased libido. And now again, this is without glaring, um, oh my God, androgenic blood work. So this is the, your blood work's fine kind of side of things. Uh, let's see what you guys are saying. You guys are really relating here. Periods are clockwork, but sometimes I only bleed for one day and it's all clots and purple and sometimes it's painful and horrible. Yep. Yes to the anxiety, doom spiraling. Only get horny on my period. I hear that a lot too. Yeah. Some food for thought, peeps. So for estrogen dominance, here's some stuff to eat and think about with food that can help. Okay. So, and now again, stress is king here. Sleep is also very important. Now I mentioned insomnia and fatigue as part of it. So it's, I'm not saying like, like, duh, you know, I should get more sleep, but focusing on fixing the insomnia, if that's one of your symptoms is a top priority here, because once your sleep is better, then that regulates all of your hormones that tend to have a lot of interference with the estrogen and progesterone balance. So that's important. But food wise, cruciferous vegetables. So cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, kale, Brussels, all these things, they contain, oh my God, I don't know how to pronounce this, indole-3-carbonyl and sulforaphane. So these two things help promote the metabolism of estrogen. Um, also, I read something about raw cabbage or minimally cooked cabbage. I love cabbage. I'll eat it raw in leaf form. It is so satisfying to me because it is so crunchy. Um Oh, no, where'd my meeting go? Okay. So I love that. Um, flax seeds. I recently really gotten into flax. I've been trying to find alternatives for things for my clients that can't have almonds. Um, and I've also found that it, people can sometimes be allergic to lupin if they're allergic to almonds, which was my other go-to replacement. So I've been recently trying more things with flax. If you saw, I made those like um, cold cut patties on my, on my Instagram. I use flax as a base. Um, in the cookbook, there's going to be like a berry muffin using flax, like a microwave kind of thing. So love flax. They're rich in photoestrogenic lignans. It's a weird word. Um, these compounds help balance out estrogens. So, and they keep you full longer too. They're nice and full of fiber. So, and then number three, fiber rich foods, similar to androgenic. So beans, veggies, things like that. 
Omega-3s, very important, healthy fats, certain herbal teas, spearmint and chamomile specifically are really good at balancing hormones. Spearmint's great for balancing androgens and estrogens. Chamomile's great at balancing cortisol. Gotta love it. Um, God, I'm so wordy in my note taking. It's so funny. I get in a groove and then I'm like, anyone here, like, who here feels like if you have to highlight when you're reading something, you highlight the whole damn page. And it's like, you go into it thinking, I'm just going to, I'm going to highlight what's important. But then you're like, I can't not highlight this. And before you know it, the whole page is highlighted. That's my notes for these Zooms. (laughs) Just like stream of consciousness when I get in the groove. Same thing, protein, super important. Um, Some people, now I'm not big on the, like, obviously you guys see I eat dairy, right? I do, well, I do just fine with dairy. I didn't always, but I do now, right? Some people do find that if they have more estrogenic dominance, going dairy-free does help them. And I leave that up to the individual. If you want to give that a shot, text me. We can come up with a plan just to start slow and just kind of do it and kind of look at the data with it. Um, Not from a diet perspective, but truly they notice their hormonal symptoms will start to change from eliminating dairy. So if that's something that you want to look into, text me so we can tread lightly with that. But that's an option. Um, Not for everybody, but some do notice it. Um, Staying really well hydrated is super important if you're estrogen dominant because you're going to rely on your body's process of detoxing and getting all of the lingering hormones where they got to be, getting them eliminated, metabolized, whatever. So you want to make sure you are drinking enough to continue this process. You want to give your body the foundation it needs for all of its operations to function, just in general. But when it comes to getting excess estrogens out, you want to make sure you're well hydrated. So at least that detoxification process that your body naturally does can be optimal. Okay. Um, All right. So lastly, inflammatory PCOS. So this one is really interesting. Um, I think that a lot of the types of PCOS just have a lot of inflammation involved in it. I'm almost hesitant to call inflammatory PCOS its own type of PCOS because I find it's usually connected to something. When I don't see it connected to something, the person usually has a thyroid disorder. And that's common with high levels of inflammation. So... um, People with inf- with PCOS often have increased levels of inflammation. A good test for this would be C- CRP, C-reactive protein, when you go for your regular labs. Just keep an eye on that. Um, but high, st- high levels of inflammation also can cause insulin resistance, can also cause inflammation um, increase in androgens, um, can make it more difficult to heal, which causes a longer prolonged stress on the body. It can cause digestive issues, which then don't allow you to absorb nutrients properly, which if you're not getting your nutrients, then your hormones are going to be off. It It's not so much its own thing as much as it is the kind of the glue that makes a lot of sense, you know, connecting a lot of things here. If you have high levels of inflammation, it just kind of makes sense, right, when you're experiencing these things. So... Um, Chronic inflammation can worsen insulin resistance. Um, It can also lead to um, more, a higher chance of autoimmune involvement. 
right? So if your body is in that high inflammation state, your body is not able to function properly. An autoimmune illness is when your body attacks a system of some kind for some reason. It just attacks itself. So if you're thinking about it, if it's in a high inflammation state, everything's going haywire. Your body's a fine-tuned machine. If it has a certain process for a certain system and everything's haywire, it can get confused. It can attack something it's not supposed to. It can shut down a system, a process, whatever. When that happens, that's when you get an autoimmune. And typically when it's a hormonally driven one, things like diabetes, gastroparesis, um, Hashimoto's and, and, um, oh my God, what's the other graves, you know, things like that. Um, what are you going to say here? Super extra swollen today. That's a very common side effect of inflammation. You know, it's interesting though. Inflammation can be what we think of it as, is like swelling and, and, and just like extra water retention, uh, an inflammation in size. That's usually a sign of the internal inflammation that's going on. Internal inflammation won't necessarily be an enlargement, but internal inflammation could be your whole digestive system could be off. Um, it could be you're unable to fight off certain types of, of, of like viruses or bacteria. Um, it could be severe mood disorders or things that are, are exacerbated because of it. So inflammation can affect any part of the body, the brain, skin, eyes, our, our joints, our organs, anything is fair game when inflammation is present. So that's, I find that even if someone doesn't have an inflammatory PCOS, like, you know, they basically only have these symptoms and Hashimoto's or something like that, that's more rare. Usually what I'll see is the worse off their other imbalances are acting, the more inflammation they have present in their body. That's why we always just try to work anti-inflammatory stuff into what we're doing. Um, let me see. Any questions on this? Because I feel like I'm getting to that point in the Zoom where I'm getting that Charlie Day thing where I'm like, you know, and my notes, as we have realized, are not to be relied upon. So any questions, feel free to add them in the chat if you need clarification on this. So some symptoms that you can get from inflammatory PCOS, it, they mimic other kinds of symptoms, right? So have it listed here, acne, hair growth and body, like on the face and the body, like hirsutism, hair loss, weight gain, menstrual irregularities. Um, it can cause long-term uh, issues like higher cholesterol, which we always get blamed for, right? Um, it can cause issues like the increased risk of cardiovascular disease, thyroid disorders, like I mentioned, different types of cancers and autoimmune diseases. There has been a recent uptick in what is it called? This LADA diabetes, um, they call it diabetes one and a half, right? Type one and a half or LADA, which is basically like late adult onset diabetes. And a lot of that they're saying is due to the much higher levels of inflammation. Autoimmune suck. How do we convey to our doctor that inflammation is a real concern? Oh, what should we get checked? Get checked CRP. There's a few other little specific ones that doctors pretty much will not run. I don't know why. Um, I wish I had better advice on besides just continuing to go to doctors till you find one that gives a damn. But I would say that you might have better luck becoming as specific as you can be in the symptoms you're experiencing and not putting them under the umbrella of inflammation. Like 
doctors are kind of egotistical in that sense, from what I found, like they want to be the ones that tell you that it could be inflammation. So it's kind of like reverse psychology. If you list out all of the things you're feeling that you can, you know, attribute to your inflammation, then maybe they can help you try to pursue relief in that area. But there is a reason the doctor disgruntled come to me <laughs> because I get it. I have not really found a doctor that takes inflammation seriously either, unless like the CRP is through the roof. So how do I even start the process of diagnostic testing? Like, who do I ask? What is the language I use? What tests do I ask for, et cetera? Um, so if you go to your gyno, I would, I would go with a list of written out symptoms that you feel pertain to PCOS. And then I would also voice the reasons that you feel like it wouldn't be considered PCOS, like bring up the fact that like, yeah, I might have regular periods. However, the timing of when they begin might be regular, but they're completely irregular in terms of duration, intensity, um, what I can expect. I mean, it's, it's a crapshoot. That's still a menstrual issue, right? So I would say try to bring up the specific symptoms you're having without the labeling um, and then I would ask for some lab work, some hormonal lab work to see where, where you're at. And from what they run on their own, I know this sounds like a waste of time, but this is what I found to get through the ego gate, right? From what they first run, if there's anything outside of what they've ran that you're curious to know, you'll have more luck asking for it after the fact. One, because maybe something on your blood work that they ran will show the issue you're having. Um, and two, if it doesn't, you can then say, well, I'm curious about blah, blah, blah. And I didn't see that one ran and see what they say. And hopefully they go for it. I feel like in this day and age, if someone's willing to pay for it, like, why can't we just order our own stuff for everything? If only it was like accessible, affordable. Um, okay, so for androgenic PCOS, sorry, I was like, processing that I, I like I forgot to answer part of your question and I realized it so ask for um your androgen test like ask for androgens to be checked ask for DHEA to be checked progesterone estradiol it's like a weird it's like e-s-t-i-o-d-o-l I think is the way you spell it so start with those and then see what you what you get. Um, for inflammatory PCOS, it's really, really important you manage stress. That is, I know I've said that about all of them, right? But high levels of stress will cause you to be in inflammation. Now, when it comes to things like moving somewhere, um, schooling, a new job, a child with a health issue, child with a behavioral issue, uh, family drama. Like, like I said, there is avoidable stress and unavoidable stress. There's a stress that comes with being a human in these in 2023. You know, you want to really try your best to mitigate the stress you experience and the effect it has on you because we can't always mitigate there being stress present. Super important with inflammation. Um, way more important than any of the foods I'm going to recommend you is lifestyle stuff, trying to get sleep, trying to take time for yourself, be gentle on yourself, don't push yourself too hard, even if you feel guilty about that. All of those things, genuinely taking care of yourself. This goes right along with the um, 
adrenal PCOS, truly taking care of yourself is so important here. Okay. Um, but in terms of foods you can eat, that could help. Fatty fish is huge for this. I mentioned it before. Sardines. Uh, you know, I've actually never had trout. Trout's on the list. I like, I really, I've never had mackerel either. I'm going to try to find recipes and do those too, because I'm just genuinely curious. Um, berries. Berries are great for this. The types of antioxidants they have in them are particularly anti-inflammatory and they're high in fiber, which again, helps regulate blood sugar, which will keep your inflammation down. Broccoli, if you can digest it, broccoli is linked to decrease, decreased inflammation as well. Um, avocados, avocados are packed with potassium, magnesium, fiber, um, and monosaturated fats, which are great for your heart. So they also contain different types of um, anti antioxidants, which help reduce cancer risk, especially reproductive cancer risk. I mentioned before, green tea. Green tea is great at, um, at being anti-inflammatory. White tea is also great. If you're going to do white tea, though, and you don't just want it as like a tasty drink, you're looking at it for health benefits, you do want to get the highest grade white tea you can find. Um. That was the antioxidant I was forgetting before, EGCG. EGCG is the antioxidant that's in green tea. Those of you who grew up in the dieting days of the early 2000s probably remember seeing that all over the green tea pills and everything that were being pushed. But the reason that EGCG is a great antioxidant for weight loss, as they touted it, um, was because it helps manage hormones and inflammation. So more you know. Peppers. Peppers, um, both bell peppers and chili peppers contain powerful antioxidants like cucurin, which is really, really good for us. Um, synaptic acid, ferulic acid, and capsaicin, which are all hugely anti-inflammatory. One of my favorite things to do with peppers, uh, bell peppers, like get the little ones, pull out the core, pull out the seeds, stuff it with some kind of salad of your choice, like tuna salad, egg salad, chicken salad, shrimp salad, whatever. It's so tasty. And I just love things in like a little vessel. They're also great if you make jalapeno poppers. You can do like bacon and cream cheese and just like stick them in the oven until they're soft. Love that. Um, red peppers are also great. I like red peppers with my scrambled eggs. Um, throwing them on a sandwich. Love it. Mushrooms. Varieties, especially like lion's mane, shiitake, truffles. If you're going to be bougie, I have never had fresh truffle before. No, I did. I'm sorry. I was in culinary school and I got it from one of the culinary kids. But if you happen to just have some truffles lying around, um, they're high in phenolic acid uh, antioxidants, which per, which are hugely anti-inflammatory. I love mushrooms. I put one of them up in like the Trader Joe's uh, haul video I did today. Love it. Grapes. Grapes are great. They reduce inflammation. Be careful if you have insulin resistance when it comes to grapes, though, because they are very, very sweet and they are kind of high on the glycemic index. So they're going to cause a little bit of a sugar spike. If you're going to have grapes, please make sure you're having a great, a great source of protein with it, like a rolled up cold cut or trying to think of like really good protein sources Some tofu, you know, like you want to go for like a good burst of protein. The more the more sweet the carb, the more impactful your protein you want it to be. So 
turmeric. Turmeric's everywhere now. We want fresh organic turmeric. Um, replace it yearly if you haven't, at least for the antioxidant pro uh, properties of it. It'll still taste good, but just won't be as strong. Um, extra virgin olive oil. Woo! NVP, my favorite. Um, it's it's great in those heart healthy monosaturated fats that I was talking about before. Um, now here's the thing about olive oils. If you want a good, cheap, good quality, like you always want a good quality olive oil. Don't get the bastard oils where it's like, read, read the label on the back. You don't want it mixed with any other oils. You don't want olive oil blend. You don't want it from some super dark plastic bottle because that's just masking the fact that it's not a great quality oil. They try to make it look greener than it is, right? Go for the brand Athena. That is, it's a Greek brand. Aside from being biased, it's just a good old, like like Greek people buy that oil because it's just cheap. It's not that expensive. It's good quality. You could see it's nice and dark and green. Um, it has a, a decently high smoke point so you can cook with it. You don't have to worry about, you know, it burning really fast. Um, I can't recommend it enough. And I think, it, I think it's internationally sold. So Mario, I think you should be able to find that one too. Athena brand olive oil. Um, when you're doing olive oil for like dipping, it's going to stay raw. It's going in salad dressing, stuff like that. You can play around with some fancy olive oils if you want. I don't think that it changes like the heart health of it as long as it is extra virgin olive oil. Oh, and try to get one that is first cold pressed. Extra virgin olive oil, first cold pressed. That's going to be where you get the most nutrients from it. So if you want to go the fancy route with olive oils, feel free. Probably is going to taste different the fancier it is. Like it's like good for dipping olive oil. But for your everyday purpose, regular Athena works great. Dark chocolate and cocoa. Again, be careful if you have insulin resistance. Tomatoes, cherries, um, almonds and walnuts. They have a high level of healthy fats, vitamins, antioxidants. Leafy greens, beans, flaxseed. So those are, those are very, very good for anti-inflammation. I wouldn't go about trying to make your entire diet solely made of these things, but try to incorporate them because they're also delicious. So, all right. So I tried not to make this too long and I ended up taking an hour. Um, thank you guys for sticking with me through it. And I hope it was helpful. Um, if you have any questions at all, please feel free. Let me know and enjoy the rest of your night. I will see you next week. Okay. Bye.